Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor of Anthropology and Peace and Conflict Studies, Nancy Reese. Professor Reese specializes in symbolic anthropology, social theory, Russian culture and society, and peace and conflict studies. In 2021, Reese was the recipient of the Jerome Balmuth Award for Teaching and Student Engagement. That award recognizes a Colgate faculty member who demonstrates distinctively successful and transformative teaching regardless of methodology. Professor Reese has taught a multitude of courses within sociology and anthropology, peace and conflict studies, and Russian and Eurasian studies, and the liberal arts core curriculum. Professor Reese earned her undergraduate degree from Boston College and her master's and PhD from Cornell University. Professor Reese, welcome to 13. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Well, we are excited to have you here. And I want to kick things off with a little bit of a chat about your um, professorship in anthropology and peace and conflict studies. So can you talk about how you ended up in both departments and what, if any, synergies are there between the two um, between those two areas? Okay. Well, that's a long biographical question or a question with a long biographical answer. I, um, I actually was a Russian major in college. I studied uh, poetry and poetics and uh, did a lot of work on poetic theory as an undergraduate at Boston College. After uh, graduating, I worked for a few years, and then I traveled pretty widely in the world. I went to places like India, uh, Thailand, and I lived for a year in Japan. During that year, it was the 40th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, I traveled a number of times to Hiroshima and worked with uh, with educators and, and journalists there on some of the commemorative events. And that had a huge impact on me. So at that time, I was trying to figure out what direction do I go in. And I was kind of co-inspired by my background as a Russianist, and I wanted to do something working on the Soviet Union and I was really, really inspired by everything I saw around education, around the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it, it kind of felt natural to go to do something to study the Cold War, for example. Um, but when I, when I looked at different kinds of disciplines, I wanted something that encompassed everything that I did from poetry and poetics and language and discourse and discourse analysis to war and weapons. So I applied for anthropology programs and went to Cornell, and that turned out to be so fortuitous because my advisor there actually had a contact who was the head of the ethnographic union in Moscow, in the Soviet Union. This was in the mid-'80s. And um, the two of them, this American professor Carol Greenhouse and this Russian professor Valery Tishkov were able to actually put together an exchange program for PhD research, which was a rarity in the late 1980s. Hmm. And that allowed me to go to Russia uh, as as a young PhD student, anthropologist, do some work in in Russia and the Soviet Union on ideas about the Cold War. That was my PhD program. Program was to study pe- people's thoughts about the Cold War. So 
that creates the person that I became, a person who does Russian language, Russian poetry, poetics, but also, you know, politics and political discourse around war and especially around nuclear war. So it's a kind of a strange amalgamation, but it ultimately came together. And then I got a job at Colgate where they had a peace, then peace studies program, which was fairly rare in, uh, in small schools like, like, like liberal arts schools like Colgate. So um, to be able to get a, a professional job going at this particular university with a fantastic Russian department, a great sociology and anthropology department, and peace and conflict studies was, was just a, you know, the, the beginning of, of the possibility of having a career that encompassed all of that. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that first, that year in Russia when you went to work on your PhD? So I, um, I had been to Russia uh, four times in the mid-80s, and then I went there for a 10-month uh, period as a PhD student to, write my, to work on my dissertation. That was, I landed there in uh, late August 1989, and I stayed through into the summer of, of 1990. So that was um, what I would call the height of perestroika, Perestroika had been started by Gorbachev when he came to power in the mid-1980s as a program of political transformation, glasnost, um, speeding up of the economy, and a whole bunch of other things, bureaucratic and social things that went along with that. Um, But it was socially a time of great ferment. And I wanted to study the um, people's attitudes towards the Cold War. I don't – most people listening to this – um, might not remember, but the late 1980s was a time of enormous citizen-to-citizen exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union, a period when people were actually talking about nuclear weapons and the need to abolish them, the need to abolish the possibility of instant hair-trigger nuclear war between the two superpowers. Um, but And Perestroika and Gorbachev and, and ultimately Gorbachev and Reagan encompassed that inspiration of ending the Cold War, ending the nuclear arms race, and everything that went with it. Um, and I was interested in how people were reacting to that kind of global politics. But when I landed on the ground with my notebooks and my little old-fashioned cassette tape recorder in hand, and I started talking to people, and I used various snowball methods. Um, my institute there helped me a lot to find people to interview um, when I started talking to people, even the retired military generals that they put me in touch with to, to talk about the Cold War, nobody was interested in geopolitics. Everybody wanted to talk about the ferment in their society. This is 1989, two years before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Nobody on the ground, no political scientist globally had any idea that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. What it felt like on the ground was a society um, – I'm gesturing. You can't see my gesture on the podcast. (laughs) But I'm shaking my hands like an earthquake because it felt like a society undergoing a five-year-long earthquake. Mm. Every day there was some new revelation about hidden politics. Every day there was some new item disappearing from the store shelves like aspirin or medicine for diabetics or even basic foodstuffs like salt. Mm. Every day there was some new political um, upheaval and people were very 
shaken up by this. They were confused by it. They felt like there was something going on underneath the surface that they couldn't quite understand. They were alarmed and upset. It wasn't about nuclear weapons. It was about everyday life. Hmm. And in as PhD students do, especially in anthropology, which is a discipline that allows you to kind of shift and follow what your informants, what people on the ground are telling you, um, I went out every day for interviews. I tried to have a couple interviews every day or do something that would bring me in contact with people that I could talk to. And so I just kept taking notes on what they were talking about. It wasn't nuclear weapons. It was, you know, where is all the canned fish? <laughs> Why can't we get our medicines for our grandmother, right? So I just wrote down what people said. I did uh, long interviews where people, instead of talking about war, were talking about the war of their society, the sense of a society in a state of unpredictable collapse. Hmm. And where were you? I was in Moscow. Okay. I traveled a little bit outside of Moscow, but but my field work was mostly in Moscow. Okay. Now that ultimately led to the book Russian Talk, Culture and Conversation During Perestroika? That Yes, that was my dissertation. It had a slightly longer title, um, but uh, that What's was— What's the full title? The full title was Mystical Poverty and oh. the Rewards of Loss. My editor at Cornell, Fran Benson, said, I think that's that title's not very catchy. How about we try something short like Russian talk? The moment she said that, I was like, yeah, that's what this is about. It's about talk. It's about what people are talking about, hmm. everyday life and, and everyday conversation. Interesting. So and that book came out in 1997. And what did you find, I guess, or how did that lead to, I guess, uh, how did that kind of push your career forward or, or did it change your direction as far as what you were interested in studying at that point or learning about? I guess what it did was anchor me as a scholar and a thinker in everyday life. And if, if you read the book, um, it's – it's about the everyday. It's about people's everyday struggles and the kinds of things they talked about around the kitchen table. Um, but, and I, I'm teaching everyday life right now, so I, I try to get this across to my students. You can be talking about something really banal around the kitchen table in a Moscow kitchen in 1989, but ultimately that connects to much larger issues, histories, um, experiences, people's people's personal and familial experiences. And one of the things that it really connected to, and my later work ends up excavating this even more, is that people can be talking about something really banal in their kitchen. Like later I do, did some work on potato. Oh, yes. That's the next question. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> what I found in during perestroika was that people could be talking about really simple things like potatoes and ultimately, they would end up telling you about World War II, which in Russia they call the Great Patriotic War. Um, they would end up talking about family histories of suffering in the gulag, of decades of political upheaval and transformation through the, the, the wartime and the post-war period, so that the banalities of everyday life completely connect to the largest geopolitical issues, which is what I was interested in mm -hmm. in the first place. So everything kind of melds together. So, And that, that book um, ended up surprisingly to me, I, I think, and to others probably, that book ended up being one of the only – and it was this was totally accidental. 
one of the only um, studies that really captured what people were talking about on the ground in Moscow during those two critical years at the height of perestroika when everything was falling apart faster than ever, leading ultimately to what we know as the collapse of the Soviet Union. So um, the book ended up, even though it's about kitchen table talk, ended up being well cited. It's the it's the, after Gorbachev. It's the second most cited work on perestroika on Google Scholar. You'll if you if you type in perestroika, you'll see that that work come up. So it ends up being useful in for political scientists and many others who study that really important moment in in Soviet and uh, Russian history. Hmm. And you also teach uh, about, you mentioned potatoes and the importance of the potato in Russia and also the Russian mafia, right? I mean, right. how did, first tell me about the two and then I don't know how you go from potatoes to the mafia, but I'm, I'm definitely curious. Okay. Well, so one of the things that was happening in Russia, in the Soviet Union in the 1980s and then Russia in the 90s, because I, I just kept doing fieldwork. I got a wonderful fellowship from SSRC and I was able to go to Russia repeatedly in the early and mid 90s. Also took a uh, Colgate study group in '92, so I spent a lot of months on the ground in Moscow and other cities after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Some of that material ends up in my book, um, and the, this is the the aftermath of the the 1991 coup that led to the dissolution of the Soviet system and the Soviet Union. In the aftermath of that. You have all kinds of powerful actors and and brutal actors taking advantage of an of a very powerful economy, very rich country actually, in in a host of ways. You have powerful actors taking advantage of that. That's political leaders, uh, business new newfangled business leaders, and the mafia that emerges really in the late 1980s but becomes very apparent in the early 90s. Um, and these are street mafia, guys, you know, with, with like crew cuts and gold chains walking around with big muscles going to the gym in gangs. And you could see them on the streets in the 90s in Moscow. That's those mafia, mafiosi. But that's also political leaders taking advantage of a, a wealthy collapsing economy to grab whatever they can. And we see that in the oligarchic system that, you know, all these decades, three um, three decades later, is um, instantiated in as Putinism, right? Now that's a sophisticated system that I called thugocratic, and we can talk about thugocracy a bit yes. later. Yes. Um, so what you had were these powerful actors basically dismantling and privatizing the whole economy on the one hand and regular people those people i had met in the in the in the 1980s regular people struggling to survive when for instance a pensioner doesn't get their 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 pension for 6 months running where teachers and doctors and nurses employed by the state don't get their salaries paid for months at mm. a time. And this is happening across the former Soviet Union very intensely in Russia. So people are totally impoverished by the collapse of this economic system on the one hand while other people – and they could see this. They could see their their poor little dacha sitting there crumbling, decaying wooden dacha, a hut basically. And right next door, 
being built by some mysterious banker, a, a, a four-story brick mansion that with, with turrets like a castle. So this was the rise of a mafia system which impoverished the vast majority of people and led them to do things, intensify what they had already been doing in the Soviet period of growing a lot of their own food and growing, especially growing potatoes, mm. which they said are the way that they can survive. If they can grow enough potatoes in the summer, they can survive through the winter. So mafia and potatoes are ultimately connected because they uh, they, they focus on two different um, aspects of a system being reformulated to advantage the wealthy and the brutal and disadvantage everybody else. Wow. You know, a, a large part of your work uh, involves talking with people, right, and interviewing or listening to, to people. How do you meet the folks? Like how do you get around the Russian dinner table when you're, when you're there? Or how do you meet the Russian mob? Like what, what did you do? <laughs> okay. Well, um, anthropologists who work in cities uh, will often have the experience of, of meeting all kinds of people at random. Sometimes their, you know, their work may focus on a really specific institution, a school or a hospital or some kind of specific setting. But um, others will, will work more broadly in that. I was interested in talking to wide ranges of people. So um, the institute I was affiliated with in uh, the late 80s, and I, I stayed affiliated um, there when I went for research through the 90s, put me in touch with lots of different people. So I was able to visit schools, some healthcare facilities, talk to military people, retired military, um, factory workers. And then uh, because I speak Russian fairly fluently and I'm really interested in Russian culture, I know a lot about everyday life in Russia. And um, uh, so I'm able to, to sit at a dinner table, I'm, I, in, especially in those years anymore, it's not so... Uh, unusual, but as in those years, it was unusual to be sitting around a table if you were a Russian person to sit around the table and have a guest at the table be an American academic who speaks Russian uh, and who understands, because I did understand through anthropological fieldwork, I did understand the nitty-gritty elements of everyday life. And I was living the same way in a small, shabby apartment, taking the subway, walking around the city, schlepping with my groceries in little string bags. So I, I was living the way a regular Russian lives, not in a, some grand hotel. And um, so I understood viscerally and personally what people were, were experiencing. Um, and so people put me in touch with other people who put me in touch with other people, and that's how I, I met people. That's also how I met my, uh, my first Russian uh, mafiosi uh, who called himself a bandit. And that, uh, that happened in, in the mid-90s when I was in the city of Yaroslavl. I was interviewing um, petty business people, mostly men. So I'll call them businessmen because they were almost all men. Um, I, I wanted to understand the entrepreneurial urge and the kinds of constraints that people trying to carve out a living in, in the unfolding system of new business. I wanted to understand how they saw their world. So I went went to Yaroslavl with some friends of friends helping me find a place to live, et cetera. And, I, uh, and they put me in touch with business people to interview. The first guy I interviewed on the, on the second day I was in that city, basically, 
um, was a soap salesman selling uh, washing powder in 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 bags out of the back of his totally beat up car. That was his business model, An, a very normal way of doing business in those days. And he called himself a distributor, ah. a dis- distributor of was soap, door to door, sort of business to business. But okay. the businesses I'm talking about were. The size of a closet, often, and with a like a kind of a closet at the at the bottom of an apartment building with a steel door. Um, so we're talking very small business, just getting started in like 1994, 1995. So I had an interview with this guy, and he was very cheerful and helpful and funny. And he said, uh, "So, are you looking for other people to interview?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely. If you know anybody, please let me know." And he said, well, I have some friends. I'll, I'll put them in touch with you. Uh, I said, thank you. The next day, my phone rings, and I get a call, and it's a guy who says, hi, Nancy, this is Misha. I, uh, I hear you're looking to interview business people. I'd be really happy to have an interview with you. I said, great. Where shall we meet? He says, don't worry. I'll come pick you up. I said, okay, well, my address is, he says, in, this is all in Russian mm-hmm. on the phone. He says, I know where you live. <laughs> okay. It, it's a small city. People know people, so whatever. So um, the, that next day at noon, he comes by in a battered black Mercedes, and a, this charming 30-something guy takes me to a cafe, and we start the interview. I ask him if I can use my tape recorder. He says, no, I'd rather not be tape recorded. Um, so I said, okay, well, Misha, so tell me, what do you do for a living? Pause. He says, he leans over the table and he says, yeah, bandits. I am a bandit. Just like that. I'll, I'll never forget that moment. I totally never forget how it felt to be sitting there. And I'm thinking my mom would really hate that I'm doing this interview. <laughs> She was always worried about me being in Russia, um, mostly worried about me getting hit by a car, which is probably the way I, you know, it was pretty dangerous then on the roads. Hmm. Um, so I interview this guy and, and I'm like, oh, and and I knew the slang because I, I was a voracious follower of news and media and TV shows and so forth. So I knew that to, for him to say, yeah, bandit met, I'm a bandit. I'm a mafiosi. It meant that he was a certain kind of bandit, uh, mafia leader. So um, I I asked him questions like, well, what's it like to be a bandit? Um, Do you ever have to kill people or threaten people? And he said, no, you have the completely wrong idea about the mafia. We're the good guys. We're like lawyers in America. (laughs) We help business people. The business people are very unruly, he said. We help the business people manage their disputes and solve their conflicts and, Mm. and resolve their contractual disagreements. And I just, you know, anthropologists are trained to to listen and absorb and, and record and really think about what people are saying and what the meaning of what people are saying. So I just kept asking him questions, you know, has he ever been in prison? Um, what did his wife and mom think about his, his work as a, as a bandit? Um, and he answered all of my questions. What was the answer? Um Oh, he, well, he would say, yeah, I, I had a stint in, in prison, but the policemen, he said, were they were all my friends. So oh. the second day I was in, in jail, they brought me a nice, comfortable mattress to sleep on. They brought me, you know, whatever I needed, food. They, they let my, my wife bring, a, you know, care packages, basically. Okay. So 
I, you know, I, I listen to everything with two ears at once. This is kind of ethnographic training, right? You listen to the, the superficial meaning and you accept what people are saying. You don't contradict them and tell them, you know, I know that that's not how it works, but whatever. You, you listen and you absorb and you trust that they're telling you something that's, that has truth or truthiness in it at some level. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, so you're kind of, you're, you're a little bit skeptical, but you are also, you also kind of give veracity to your informant. Okay. That's a complex thing that ethnographers do almost in, intuitively by the time we have experience on the ground. So the really amazing thing was that this guy, this bandit, invited me to drive around the city with him. Why he did that, I don't know. I think I was a novelty for him. I think he was proud to show his work as a bandit who knew, seemingly knew everybody in that city. Hmm. Um, and so he let me, let me drive around with him while he did his rounds and visited banks, educational institutions, small stores, including the local Ben & Jerry's that had just opened. At one point, we pulled into a parking lot and a police car pulled over. And I was like totally panicked and trying to hide in the car. Um, thinking, you know, I'm going to be arrested. What, what am I doing here? I'm an American with a with a bandit. Um, but actually, it turned out that uh, my bandit friend was selling ammunition. At least this is what he told me. He he had a deal with the police, and he told me, you know, the police can't get the ammo they need for their service revolvers. So we bandits know how to get ammunition, and we're we're supplying them on the side. Wow. Um, is that entirely true? I don't know, but I do know that they made a deal of some kind. I could see that through the window as, as it was happening. Um, we went to the to several banks, um, and we went to this large university, a brand-new uh, institution founded on German support money. Lots of European money was flowing into Russia and, and the rest of the Soviet Union in those years. Um, this fancy, modern, technologically sophisticated university. And with the bandit, we walked through the whole university, walked to the president's office, walked up the stairs to the president's office, walked through his two secretaries' offices without, you know, with just a hello, without a, an appointment or anything, straight into the back office of the president. Um, you know, it was like like if you walked into Brian Casey's office with a with a mafiosi <laughs> with no appointment. Okay, picture that. Well, Brian would probably be cheerful about it and uh, say, "Hi, Nancy, what you doing here with that bandit?" But um, which was kind of what what that was like. Wow. You know, like hi, hi, Misha, nice to see you. And then they had a long conversation and a negotiation in mafia slang, where I could follow about thirty percent of it. I knew it was some kind of negotiation. Later, as I read about and asked people, interviewed lots of people after that experience about the mafia, what's going on here? What, ha- what just happened to me? What did I see? And I, I slowly began to build an understanding of the um, extraction networks that were happening. These were, these were basically protection rackets. I was driving around with a bandit while he serviced his protection rackets, while he offered protection to his so-called clients, 
The way protection rackets work is really complicated, but in but if you watch mafia movies of any country and any genre, you'll understand. It's basically tough guys putting pressure on business people, or in this case, a university president, to fork over some payment in exchange for not being harassed or threatened or worse, wow. the protection racket. That's amazing. Did so, you yeah. did you did you keep up with Misha through the years? Do you know where Misha is? No, I saw him a couple times during the summer. Um and on both occasions he 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 kind of looked at me, smiled a slight smile and pretended not to know me. So that was interesting. I also had a, a weekend in completely by or not by accident, out of my naivete, he introduced me to some young musicians. Who had a house on uh, on the on the river on the Volga River in Yaroslavl, and and they invited me to come spend weekends and get away from the hubbub of the city, which was great. So I would take the little trolley bus out out to the to their dacha. And one weekend, I was out there. We were playing badminton on a hot summer afternoon, and um, three cars pulled up, and Misha was in one of them. The other two cars had. Uh, about nine bandits total. And you could tell this is a 95-degree summer day in the hot sun on the Volga River in Yaroslavl. And these guys pour out of three cars wearing three-piece suits. Um, and they and suddenly I realized that this lovely dacha I had been weekending at was a safe house. Oh, my. Duh. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I'm naive. I mean, I was like, why do these three poor musicians have this beautiful dacha? They were anchoring the, the safe house, wow. keeping it going, making it look like nothing when, in fact, it was a meeting place for mafia gangs. And so I spent the day basically cooking for <laughs> these banditi. Um, that's a whole story. And it was kind of, you know. The, the, what did the, you cook? Uh, well, I'm a vegetarian, so I made the potatoes and the oh, salad while nice. my friend uh, made she, – she went ran to the local kiosk and bought as many chickens as they had, and she made chicken for them. <laughs> Mostly they were interested in drinking vodka, so they needed the little little snacks that go with drinking vodka. Okay. They drank a lot of vodka. Were you, were you ever worried about your safety in all of these interactions? Well, that day – there were two things. That day um, – in the middle of the meal, I, I was kind of hanging back and speaking quietly and pretending not, you know, kind of trying to fade into the corner. I was only one of two women there. Um, my friend Lena and 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 I were the two women there. Um, so we were, of course, the cooks because gender, right? Uh, so at one point, the lead the lead gangster who was about four and a half feet tall, very short guy in a very broad-shouldered suit, um, t- very tough guy. At one point, he were, he's standing up smoking, and he comes over to me, and I've been trying to kind of recede into the background. Uh, he comes over to me, and he says, and who is this? And I say, uh, hello, I'm Nancy from Chicago. Yeah, Nancy, Chicago. Because it was, it, it's obvious when I speak that I'm not native. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I had to just come clean. He he leans in towards to me, like his his face is about six inches from my face, and I just hold my own. Uh, I'm, I was taller than him, and I'm not tall, so. Um, <laughs> but he's pretty intimidating. He leans in and he says, "Nancy, Nancy from Chicago." 
what kind of person are you? What are you doing here? And I said, I said, well, I'm a sociologist, because that's the easiest thing to say rather than saying you're an anthropologist, which makes no sense to anybody. Um, yeah, sociologue. East Chicago. I'm a sociologist from I'm I was born in Chicago. Uh, I'm just here doing doing research. And he says, he says, how do I know you are who you are? And I said, well, I can give you my Colgate University business card. <laughs> yeah, well, he laughed the same way you're laughing, Dan. <laughs> Did you give him one? I, I had it in my yeah. pocket. So I, you know, and I had it, I had it printed in two sides in English and Russian on the other side. So I, I always had those with me. So I, I pull it out of my pocket. He, he takes it and he says, he leans in closer. So now he's like three inches from my face. He says, if you're not who you say you are, we'll find out. And he points to the very wide Volga River just outside the window. He says, you see that river? I know what they do. Remember the Chicago River and what they did in Chicago? With, we'll put your feet in concrete and drop you in the middle of the river and nobody will ever find you again. Um, I took that as performative mafia style, and I didn't. I've watched enough mafia movies in my life that I, I was like, okay, this guy is play acting mafia tough guy from the movies. Sure, I'm just gonna go with the flow and you know whatever. As they got drunker, it was a little scary, um, mostly for you know because bandits come on to you. Mm. And I was trying to avoid that. So at a certain point, I went upstairs, locked myself in the bedroom, and vanished. They were they got really drunk and mm. ended up you know sleeping on the floor. So and I didn't want to be a part of that whole scene. So wow. um, you know, but that was more more you know drunk men and how you deal with them in Russia, wow. which I have lots of experience of. I think that's good uh, segue into the thugocracy speech that you've been uh, giving recently. And uh, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about what thugocracy is and uh, I guess how it connects to what you learned in Russia. So um, in so I, I'm, I'm a staunch Democrat, a progressive Democrat, uh, and I have been my whole life. And so uh, when, when Donald Trump started running for president and ultimately when he was elected president in November of uh, 2016, I was very, very actively engaged in what was going on politically. And I, as I watched him um, during the campaign and after the campaign, after, after the inauguration, uh, as I watched Trump behave, he reminded me in style, in discourse, in in the in the in the subtle and not so subtle threat making that comes out when he speaks, he reminded me of that that guy in Yaroslavl standing mm. three inches from my face and saying, "You know, we know what to do with you if you're not who you say you are." The the whole style of discourse of presentation reminded me of the thugs, the the thuggish bandits that I had met, many of them seen over years in in Russia. And so I started thinking about the, the, the modalities of power of the Trump administration as it unfolded in, you know, early 2017. And very soon – oh, and, and you'll remember, people may not may immediately think about this. Um, there was all the talk about the way that the Russian government had supposedly supported the Trump candidacy and, you know, the, and the Trump network. Um, that information was coming out in 2016 during the election season. 
Um, and of course, it led ultimately to the Mueller investigation and all of that hoopla and, and so on. But in early 2017, let's, let's remember back, you know, four years, in early 2017, people were talking all the time about Russia, Russia, Russia. And that was Trump, right? Russia, Russia, Russia. People were talking all the time about Trump and his Russian connections. And so I was paying close attention to that and talking about that. You know, people, my friends would ask me, what do you think about all this Russia stuff? And I had, you know, something that I could say about it. So early in that, uh, right after the, the inauguration, basically, the Madison County Democrats, um, some of whose leaders I, I already knew, uh, invited me to give a talk in one of their monthly meetings. So we met in the green room at the Colgate Inn. Um, there were about 100 people there. And they asked me to, you know, just to talk about what I, how I understood as a Russianist with experience studying the Russian mafia, how I understood all of this communication about Trump and Russia. So I, I gave my first talk in uh, early, I think, early February 2017 to the, to the Madison Dems. And then People who were at that talk started uh, inviting me to their other local groups in Madison County, Onondaga County, um, Chenango County, and our local region. So I ended up giving a lot of talks in 2017 about, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia. What is this all about? Um, and I, uh, I put together – I started compiling – sources in mostly in English but some in Russia about the networks that Trump – had the mysterious networks that have still to this day, they've been written about a lot by a lot of really good journalists. Um, but the definitive understanding of Trump's support by very extended networks of oligarchs, mafiosi, like like actual proven mafiosi in um, the former Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, uh, and and some of the the Eastern Bloc, Hungary, uh, especially, you know, understanding these connections is uh, really a task for history. So I started giving talks about that, and these were kind of off, you know, not off the top of my head. They were very well researched, but all of this was unfolding, and it's still unfolding. Our understanding of Trump's connections to mafia networks in the former Soviet Union is still unfolding. And there is there is a lot of data and there's a lot of things to, to know yet about that. So I, I gave these talks. I hired uh, a, a, a couple, a group of, uh, of Benton scholars uh, to work with me because just compiling this, we, we ended up compiling several, several thousand sources and then creating a system for cross-referencing that. And I have this enormous data, database that I put together with the help of some wonderful, smart, now graduated Colgate students, a database to try to, to pin down some of this stuff that I call thugocracy. So hmm. what's thugocracy? Thugocracy is, we st we're seeing it today, it's, it's rule by thugs. It's, it's autocracy in the political science sense, yes, but it is autocracy with deep connections to um, criminal enterprises, criminal networks, corrupt political systems, corrupt leadership, people pocketing um, the wealth of the state. And, and I have a, a, a thing I can say about that if you're interested. Oh, I am. I, I wanted to, I guess, um, dig into that a little bit in that 
do you think thugocracy is more of a state of mind in acting uh, in part like um, following the mafioso kind of ethos or is it an actual connection to organized crime? Oh, that's a great question. I love that question. It's it's both of those. The performative ethos, the the way of being in the world, the masculinism, the racism, the nationalism, the xenophobia that's built into mafia style is very much a part of it. And and that performativity is how it functions as as a as political charm and charisma. So we see that with Donald Trump really clearly. That guy has charisma. It's I would call it negative charisma of the kind of, you know, Mussolini and even Hitler. Um it's 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 negative charisma, right? It's expressing threats. That's what Trump does, right? It's this, and I'm waving my hands, you can't see that on the podcast, but think about those gestures and gesticulations that characterize a Donald Trump speech. That ethos, discourse system, symbolic system, performativity is crucial in gaining followers in that kind of populist way. But what that whole performativity is sort of hiding or, or, or a little bit obscuring is the fact that it is based on networking, criminal, and corrupt enterprise. And it's, it's deeply about transnational organized crime and the ways in which, and, and Putin really pioneered, Putin and his circle, his, his large old networks really pioneered bringing organized crime to the central power of government, okay? And that's what thugocracy is about. It is bringing organized crime into power in a presidency, hmm. for example, the Russian presidency, the Hungarian presidency under Orban, the American presidency under Trump. It's, it's seeing the state, recognizing that in any country, even the poorest countries, and maybe especially the poorest countries of the world, the state has the most resources of any of any entity. The state has the most resources of you know of any system. The state ha the state has capital, and it's not just doing organized crime, you know, trafficking drugs. Um, prostitution, sex work, trafficking humans, trafficking labor, trafficking weapons, and all of those other traditional enterprises that organized crime deals in. It is unlocking the wealth and capital and power of the state as a resource for criminal enterprise. And that's what we see when we look at, and there are great books on this. Karen DeWish's book is probably one of the best ones by a a wonderful political scientist on the Putin system. There's a lot of books on the Putin system, and if you read those books, you will see Putin's history in the in the 1980s and 90s um, with working with organized crime in St. Petersburg. Mm. Um, um, that's well documented, and and everybody in Russia knows that Putin worked with organized crime groups in Petersburg to gain his power in the 
in the in the 1990s. That is unlocking the capital and the power of the state as a resource to be exploited by organized criminal networks on a transnational scale. And that's what's happened in the United States over the four years of the Trump presidency. I promise to get away from Russia here, but it's so fascinating. Um, could you go back and do what you, your research was before, your interactions that you had? Could you do that today? Or you know, is it something that's not safe or is it – do you feel like um, you wouldn't have the same access that you had? I'm curious as if could – you, could you replicate that? Yeah. So there are lots of um, ways in which the research I did in the 80s and 90s would be – and early 2000s where when I worked on potato. Um, the potato work I could, I could easily still do. Um, to get through to go to IRB the, the potato lobby's not uh, yeah, going to no, come the, after you. Yeah, no. The I, I actually worked with the potato <laughs> lobby. I, I actually visited potato institutes and I met the leadership of potato in in Russia. Um, and that nobody regards that as being important in a political sense. It is important in a political sense, but nobody sees it as that. So I, that's kind of an under the radar thing. So I could go to Colgate's. Uh, IRB, get research approval to go do more potato work. Um, but uh, IRB requires full disclosure. I did not write an IRB proposal to go study the mafia. I fell into the mafia mm. when I was already there working on business enterprise, a, a very a sort of banal and not very dangerous topic, right? That led me into the mafia dis, you know, despite myself. In a naive way, I stumbled into that. Could I write a, a research proposal, get Colgate permission, and then get a Russian visa to go and do research on you know organized crime and thugocracy in Russia? Absolutely not. I wouldn't get a visa, but I, I wouldn't be able to even figure out a way to write a good proposal. I can do that work using the media. Um, I can do that work using social media actually is really great, um, but I can't I don't even want to, to tell you the honest truth. I really don't want to try to go to Russia nowadays, now, you know, now. Um, people in Russia today, uh, researcher researchers are being, uh, lots of researchers are doing research just fine, but there is right now a, a very chilling uh, set of practices happening in Russian higher education and in research where institutions that three years ago were considered to be completely safe from government intervention are being shut down, are having their, their presidents uh, arrested for uh, on, on worked-up corruption charges. So the corruption weapon goes in many directions, but the Russian state leadership uh, at every level now knows how to uh, silence its critics by, put, you know, putting them under corruption charges and pulling them, drag, dragging them through long uh, legal processes. I don't think I would be in danger if I went to Russia, but I, if I was open about wanting to study this, I would likely not get a Russian visa. Um, there are many other ways to study these things, and I, I prefer not to put my informants and my friends in danger by... Um, by going there to research these kinds of things in, an, in, in you know openly or otherwise, um, I would I do like to go to Russia and and visit the people I know there. So you know that that's a really painful and hard thing for me. Mm. 
Yeah, I wonder if would, – would Misha like the work that you did? That's a that's a really good question. Would Misha like – so my, my book, Russian Talk, includes a, an, as an epilogue a very short segment on meeting the banditi. Uh, and that book was translated into Russian and um, distributed by a good press in Russia. So um, people over there have read it and cited and talk about it. I don't – I sort of feel like Russian – Bandits don't read books. <laughs> so, you know, and and my analysis is is kind of social theoretical and might not make any sense to him. Yeah. Uh, my analysis was that Russians were, would say, you know, those street bandits are the good guys. They do help us solve problems. And they would point in the direction of Moscow and the Kremlin and they would say the real banditi, this is in 1992, 94, 95, they would say, they would point to the, towards the Kremlin and they would say, those street bandits are good guys. At those guys over there pointing to the Kremlin, those are the real bandits. So even in the 90s, people, people intuitively and politically understood that the real bandits were at the top of the state, mm. Yeltsin and then ultimately Putin. And you mentioned IRB in, a, in, a, in an effort to um, demystify our lingo here. Is that would institutional review board? Yes. How does that work at Colgate? Well, if you're going to do any kind of research in on human subjects, there are uh, very elaborate and, and complex uh, federal laws that institutions have to follow <laughs> to ensure the protection of human subjects. And that means informed consent open research protocols, et cetera. So that mostly applies to psychology and brain sciences and, and to some extent perhaps biology. If you're doing any work with human subjects, medical, you know, medical research, you have to have informed consent and your research protocol has to be approved. In the social sciences, um, it's getting approval for your research methods for, you know, how are you going to get informed consent from your uh, from the people you talk to, how are you going to ensure that you know you you don't endanger your research subjects? So when I'm going to Russia, especially now, I'm very conscious that my movements can be followed. I can be followed on email or social media. My phone can be taken at any time. So my whereabouts are known. So protecting human subjects in autocratic context is is hard and you have to be really aware of that um, but we do we know we do IRB for even for research that we do on campus when sure. you're doing interviews or surveys you have to get uh, research approval for for that to be sure that you're not endangering human human volunteers do they did they slap you on the wrist when you came back and said I was riding with the mob they they didn't really follow up. It, the the IRB um, system in the 90s, both at the federal level and the institutional level, was a lot looser. Um, year by year, those regulations and protocols tighten up, and mm -hmm. so you know it gets harder to do. But but in the for all the right reasons that you know, the institution and the federal government is trying to protect humans from you know, ir irresponsible or reckless sure. uh, research. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your um, your teaching um, and in particular um, some of the courses that you've taught and or are teaching. Um, one, War and Lived Experience. Um, that's um, a pecan uh, anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about that. So um, th that's one of the, the courses I've taught the most at Colgate. 
Um, I've taught it, you know, sometimes every semester for many semesters. Uh, it's a required PCON course, which also uh, also counts for the anthropology uh, major. Um, and that course is about everyday life and war, the ways that war affects communities, families, and individuals. Um, and and there are many things, you know, most studies of war are kind of uh, geopolitical or diplomatic histories, right? This brings war down to the the level of everyday experience. How did people experience wars historically and wars going on in the present? So um, th this course looks mostly at the 20th century. It deals a lot with um, with colonial violence, colonial wars, colonial genocides that students come to class having never heard anything about. Mm -hmm. And I see my job as, as kind of um, showing them, uh, giving, giving them things to read, videos to watch. There's a great film about colonial war, um, teaching them about the colonial militarism that undergirds the modern system and how that militarism affected people and still to this day affects people. So that course is about, it's about trauma, it's about loss. It's about torture. It's about everyday violence. It's about the the thick experience of violence, by which I mean the you know the complexity, the sim symbolic complexity of violence. It's about the ways that people experience violence, but it's also about, and I think this is this is for me the most important thing I I can teach about. It's also about the ways in which. Militaries, um, autocratic political systems, colonial uh, forces, and thuggish, uh, thuggish militias, like, such as those that rampaged across Yugoslavia during uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, especially during during the the, the wars there in the, the early to mid nineties. It's about the ways in which um, militarized actors utilize trauma to destroy communities. Um, and it's about why they do that, how effectively they can do that, and how, and, and we see this in every kind of, of uh, context. We see this in the Namibian geno genocide, the Herero-Nama genocide that took place in 1906 and seven in what's now Namibia. We see this in the Holocaust. We see this in the, uh, the, the Chechen wars, the wars in Bosnia, and many, many in, in the Rwandan genocide, many, many other contexts that um, militias and militaries don't just use weapons to, to wage war. They use weapons, guns and bombs, etc. But they, they also weaponize their understanding of community. And they weaponize their understanding of religion and the sacred. So, for example, destroying cemeteries, which happens in in every kind of military conf conflict, mm. large scale and small scale, destroy somebody's cemetery where their parents and grandparents and great grandparents and other ancestors are buried, where they have picnics. This happened in Bosnia. Destroy the cemeteries where people have picnics every anniversary of somebody's death to celebrate and, and connect with their, their loved ones now dead. Destroy a mosque. 
destroy a synagogue, do that viciously and um, performatively, and you traumatize not just individual people. You traumatize people, their families, their communities, their their cultures. You you and you create trauma that reverberates through decades. Mm. That where you can listen to a, a modern day Herero woman on a video um, in Namibia talking about a genocide that happened 100 years ago and coming to tears as she, as she says, she holds up a relic and she says, when I look at this relic, this, is, this for me is painful. This is painful, she says. A 100 years later, somebody feels the visceral pain of what was done to her ancestors, right? That's war. That's war. Hiroshima survivors now very elderly, talking about what happened to them in, in 1945, will we'll pause. You can see this in films or if you have the, the opportunity to actually talk to a Hiroshima survivor. You'll see in their faces, in their gestures, you'll see them actually go back in time and memory to the moment that the trauma happened or the, the time after the trauma, you know, as it's still unfolding. You'll see that trauma never goes away, that it's individual, but it's also communal. And that's what I teach about. And the students get it. And the, the best thing about that course, I do this actually in, in many different courses, is I ask students to talk to their parents, their uncles, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, if those people are still alive, about their own experiences of war. Go back in time a little bit and, you know, what happened to your family you're you're you know an Irish American or an Italian American or a or or a Russian American or you know a Jewish American, um, uh, an Indian American from South Asia. Go back in time and ask your your grandmother if if you can what happened to her. Why did she come here? And you will find in many cases that war is the reason. Yes. The students don't know this until they talk to those people, their elders, their grandparents. And when I have them do the, these projects where they, where they talk to their, their elders, almost all of them have some history of war. And some of them uncover things that are, to them, utterly transformative because they'll find that their grandfather was a, a, Jewish, um, a Jewish intellectual in Munich during the rise of, of Hitler in the Third Reich and that he kept a diary, and that he's just passed away, but his but his his children have the diary, and that the diary was translated into English after he emigrated to the United States, so that it could be saved for for posterity. So this just happened to me a couple semesters ago. The student ha has this diary of her grandfather. Um, so, you know, these kinds of experiences connecting us in our comfortable lives today with the militarism that is the history of the world, and I do this in that course, but also in, in Weapons and War, you are intimately connected with war and you don't know it. Mm. So you founded Soyuz, the Research Network for Post-Socialist Studies. I wonder if you might be able to talk about first what is post-socialist studies, and what is the significance of the network. Um, so after I came back from doing my PhD research, uh, there were several small conferences happening at places like Columbia, 
mostly put on by grad students. I was then still a grad student. Um, and we were gathering together to share the work that we were doing in the in the former Soviet Union in in Russia, but also in Ukraine in in uh, Central Asia, um, and um, and the former Soviet bloc, Poland, Hungary, Czech Czech Republic, Czech, uh, Slovakia, etc. And um, there were not very many of us anthropology types doing this work, but we gathered. Um, we gave little papers and and talked about our work, and a few of us realized that we needed to start some kind of more formal network. So uh, a, a couple of us got together and in like 1992-93 created uh, a network, and we called it Soyuz, which in Russian just means union. Soyuz was the name of the space capsule. Yes. People will remember where the Russian side and the American side joined their joined in, in space. Um, so it's, it has a kind of funny background, but that's that's where we got yeah. that from. This is kind of this network, people linking up as they did in space to um, to create uh, a network of scholars. So we founded that um, in the early 90s and uh, turned it into a uh, an interest group under the American Anthropological Association, turned it into an official group for the Slavic Studies Association, the, the Eurasian Area Studies Association. And that group um, really took off. There were, in the early days, maybe 50 scholars doing this kind of ethnographic work, and now there are, are um, hundreds into the thousands all over the world. Um, it's it's a burgeoning area. In the early days, in the early 90s, you would go to conferences, the, the um, Association, American Association for Slavic and East European Studies, as it was then called. You'd go to that conference, and it was completely dominated by political scientists, historians, and a few economists, uh, cultural studies and literature people. There were no anthropologists there. And we started just pu pulling ourselves together, people who do ethnography, anthropologists, cultural studies people, some geographers, um, some political scientists who do ethnography. So it was basically those of us doing ethnographic work on the ground in the former Soviet Union and the, and the former what we then, and I think a little bit to this day, still call the post-socialist space. The, the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, what was then called the Eastern Bloc countries, the Soviet Bloc countries. Nice. And that, that um, organization is still going. It's um, very active. They have an annual conference um, and literally you know, thousands of scholars around the world doing ethnographic work in that space, which was not being done um, before, the, before the 1980s and especially the 1990s. So Having helped to get that off the ground is, you know, something I'm proud of, and and I I love the fact that it it just goes on and on for decades without any any contribution from me. I just <laughs> sit and watch it grow. I'm not really in the leadership anymore. You laid the foundation. Yeah, 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 and I'm I'm proud of the work that a, that a small group of us did in in the early '90s to get that going. Well, you've made it to question thirteen. Okay. Right. Wow. You know, you are an expert uh, in particular on the uh, impact of the potato in Russia. So I need to know, number one, what is your favorite Russian potato dish? And if you are uh, also an expert in cooking potatoes, uh, what or what might be your favorite uh, potato dish in general, if not Russian? Um, that's a great question. In, in Russia, my favorite potato dish is what every Russian – also Ukrainian, Belarusian, you know, Central Asian family 
eats for for a, a sort of weekday dinner, which is boiled potatoes with butter and a, and a side of uh, fermented cabbage, kvashanaya mm. kapusta, uh, kind of like sauerkraut but better. Um, that's my favorite meal. And potato has a lot of protein, so as a vegetarian, I'm happy to have potatoes for dinner. At home, I think uh, I would go with, um, with, with baked potatoes. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was 13. Professor Reese, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions or any suggestions for the podcast, feel free to send us an email at 13 at colgate.edu, and that's 13 the number. And uh, we always try to get your questions answered. Uh, and until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate Sophomore and Media Relations Intern, Mariama Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.